Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. So I just wanted to introduce these two hosts really quickly. So my name is Rachel Dwyer. I'm a project manager for Fishbowl Live. Um, and today we have um, FinTech 2021 Success Stories, a critical view by hosts of Voice of FinTech. Um, and it's with David Yakubovich and Ruda Falat. Um, and then one thing I did want to mention before we kick this off is that we have released a new follow feature. So if you like this discussion, you can follow David and Rudolph um, on the app, and then you'll be notified of any future events that they do. So for now, um, I'll leave it both. Leave it to you both. Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel, for the introduction. Thank you for Fishbowl for hosting it and all the great features that uh, they came up with now. And and obviously, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. As some of you may have uh, joined already a month ago when we kicked it off, we looked at the success stories of in fintech from t- 2021. So the entire year. Now we're doing a little bit of a refresher or a catch up. So we're going to follow, uh, you know, focus on the last uh, 30 days or last month, what's been going on in the world of fintech. Of course, uh, a lot of you are based in the US or almost all of you, right? So we focus on the US, but we'll have a bit of an international uh, perspective, not only for my benefit, you know, when you sense an accent there, but uh, maybe, uh, you know, for, for everybody's benefit, because we believe that Fintech is inherently global. It is a technology game. It's a technology business where there should be no boundaries, right? It's not like you have to go around the world and build factories. And of course, if you have a great uh, domestic market across the United States, that's wonderful. But in the end, if you want to have a unicorn or, or decathlon, you may want to think about even bigger market than that. So um, maybe let me, before we start talking about this, I'll, I'll start to give you a bit of perspective if you haven't joined us before. So my name is Rudy, Rudy Falad. I started Voice of Fintech podcast in June 2019. So it's not a COVID boredom baby or anything like this. And uh, I started this by talking to founders, incumbents, investors, ecosystem hub leaders, and thought leaders around the world. And then uh, David joined us later on with a host also based in Asia, in Africa, and in LATAM. And uh, with the David and the others, we cover stories from the regions all around the world. I do the stories from Europe, US, North America, Asia, everywhere. But uh, obviously, it's great when you have a different perspective. So for example, I think uh, on Thursday, we'll have a new episode from South Africa as well. So um, uh, thanks again. What we wanted to start off with is basically just looking at a couple of success stories and we're going to have a bit of a maybe a more balanced view, right? And by the way, as Rachel said, we can, uh, you know, we can obviously let you speak and we would love to hear from you. 
the way this is going to work on Fishbowl that you need to raise your hand and then we can we can give you a mic so to speak so it's kind of like a moderated event like a webinar on uh infamous zoom for example you know let's start with with n26 and similarly also i saw an interview uh, with the founder of klarna on on cnbc basically the question was about raising money very quickly uh, for instance n26 raised just now 900 million dollars so it's a german fintech company or a neobank uh, that is worth now nine billion dollars now a few weeks later the uh, the regulator came in and imposed strict cap on n26 clients growth so how is that possible they are telling them that you cannot have more than let's say 30,000 new customers a, a month. Why is that? Because they are not happy with their operations. So I'll just uh, pause here and uh, ask David if you've seen any, th- any sort of uh, regulatory action like this, exposing maybe cracks in the growth story and uh, yeah, on the US side. Thanks, Rudy. And hey, everyone, great great to meet you. Uh, I'm one of the voice of fintech hosts in New York City. Uh, and on regulation with fintech, I think one of the cracks that we've seen during the pandemic is where neobanks and fintech companies tried to scale really quick, and they just couldn't. You know, one of them in the US is um, a startup called Blue Vine, and they're competing with Mercury and other companies, and you, you just could not reach a human for the life of you. And the process became so delayed because they had during the pandemic, so many tens of thousands of applications, they literally shut down new applications. They just said, we're not taking applications because we can't process the backlog of them. And so I hear this um, uh, concern from European regulators with N26 because this is not N26's first time to struggle. In fact, a few years ago, N26 had a big exodus of, of team members who no longer believed in the vision that the neobank was building. And so now, of course, they've come uh, through that. They've accelerated, they're growing. Uh, but the challenge is you think to, well, for example, if you're in the States, in New York, perhaps you work with uh, HSBC Private or, or City or Signature Bank or Wells or, or Chase or one of the others, and, and you can get a human, right? You can talk to someone, you can speak to a private uh, wealth manager and and get your uh, resolution to any challenges that you're experiencing uh, for for your assets. I don't know if you can do that with Chime, with Robinhood, with N26, and with other companies. So I might be siding with the European regulators on that. Yeah, you know, even though if I were an incumbent, I would be happy with a limit like this, right? Now I found found the exact number. The the Buffin, the German regulator, said you can onboard maximum of fifty to seventy thousand customers per month. <laughs> so, you know, if you were an incumbent, you would be very happy with that kind of high limit, right? And uh, on this nine hundred million round, it was led by the U.S. Uh, tech investors, Third Point Ventures, and Co2 Management. In that respect, I also wanted to talk about Klarna and Square and Afterpay. So, of course, everybody heard about the deal of Square buying Afterpay. I can see the strategic logic there and all that, you know, of course, complementary Square big in the U.S., but maybe not having uh, all the capabilities as uh, Afterpay does. So that is related to another topic, which is BNPL, right? Uh, Or, uh, you know, buy now, uh, pay later. So everybody loves this. Now, on the other hand, are we then buying too much junk, the stuff that we normally wouldn't, uh, wouldn't need? Uh, perhaps, right? 
Um, also, what is the game here? Uh, and uh, I saw Klarna, that is the leader out of Sweden, that is obviously a global fintech in this field as well. And uh, and uh, he was asked by the uh, by the journalist whether he is worried about Square buying Afterpay. And uh, his view was that, well, you know, by the time they figure it out, integrate it and all that stuff for a year and a half, we are happy with our organic growth strategy and, uh, you know, let them be distracted. So very sounded very, very confident. Uh, but one um, or two important thoughts, uh, important points he made on, you know, why as a consumer are you choosing this uh, BNPL provider or the other, right? So when you're buying something online and you see the checkout button, which button will you choose? Will you go with uh, PayPal in the US or Klarna or, you know, Square Afterpay now or something else? And uh, he was arguing that there are very little things that matter um, and the consumers are very picky. And for example, in Klarna, when you see the bill, apparently you see also the pictures of the stuff that you bought. You know, it's not some sort of a four-letter, uh, uh, you know, four-letter code for the company. And you know, it was a month ago. You see your credit card statement. You didn't know, you, you don't, you didn't know what you bought, right? So, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, David, as well, in terms of BNPL. Like, if if you use it, uh, how do you choose which one to use? You know, you don't pay interest on all of them, on on any of them. So, as a consumer, which one would you side with? Yeah, so, so buy now, pay later, BMPL, it's nothing new. I, I remember before I moved to New York, I used to buy a lot of furniture when I lived in Florida and I would go to Home Depot and Home Depot had 12 months free interest. And I go to Rooms to Go, 12 or 18 months free interest as in the same equal payment every month for 12 to 18 months. But this was a manual process. You'd have to work with the credit card merchants like Amex, Visa, MasterCard to get it done. And now, of course, Home Depot uses Klarna and rooms to go uses Affirm. They no longer do it how they did it manually. They're partnering with the big players. If you are these consumer uh, goods stores like Home Depot and rooms to go buy now, pay later with Affirm and Klarna is a win-win because you're no longer taking 12 or 18 payments. You're taking four payments. So consumers are paying more up front. Ultimately, the consumers are getting shafted by having to uh, go with these process. I think it's great, though, uh, as, as a consumer, if you're someone who has not done buy now, pay later. On the alternative side, I'll say it's a great way. It's zero percent interest, um, but you know you have to manage your budget and make sure that you don't uh, overspend. So it's it's a great new solution. How we're seeing it, it's just you're paying more than you used to pay with the small medium. But you have to manage your budget, you know, because even though it's interest free, there are fees for late payments, right? And uh, maybe it's not like uh, default, you know, default on your credit card company, etc. But still, there are consequences. So I would be uh, a bit more conservative on this one. But um, related to the partnerships, David, you know, you mentioned that why wouldn't you uh, partner with a firm and others? There's some commentators who think that, for example, for example, um, uh, Walmart is building out its own fintech unit, Hazel. And, uh, you know, they had a partnership around it, but they, they want to go in-house. What would be the benefit, right? I mean, you are a retailer, so why do you want to go to financing? Also, nothing new, but in the past, it, it was a bit mixed success, no? 
You want to own your data. This decade is the decade of data. And when you're a company like Walmart, who's coming up head to head against Amazon, they want to own every part of the supply chain. And that data is so valuable on the behavior of your customers from detecting fraud to selling more to offering coupons. So I can see why Walmart wants to own it. And um, they've gone through acquisition sprees. Uh, you may recall there was the day when Walmart had bought Jet.com, and that has been instrumental for their success to compete against Amazon. And I think beyond that, as they are a global empire, uh, when you're a company of their scale, you can have your internal units. So uh, there's you know, Walmart credit cards, Walmart debit cards. So it only makes a natural extension to have Walmart buy now, pay later. Right, interesting space, interesting space. And coming back to you know what uh, what the founder of uh, Klarna said that they are happy with the organic strategy and all this. That's all very nice, but uh, frankly, they also uh, announced uh, yesterday or today that uh, they are entering a partnership with Stripe. Right, so Klarna and Stripe will partner up. It's not an acquisition or a merger or anything like this. So you can argue that yes, it's still an organic strategy, but uh, people are finding different ways how to compete in this uh, heated space. Um, you know, a lot of people love it because there is a, it's a hu huge growth. Um, I think they are a bit quiet on the profitability, right? And also on the algorithms. Some of these providers say, we, we don't check uh, credit check, you know, it's all good. You just uh, go and buy stuff, right? So uh, there used to be a, a song like this by Shania Twain. She also said, you know, we just want to consolidate and buy, buy more stuff. So I would say let's be careful with this. And also, if you're an investor in some of these companies, let's look at the bottom line. Let's look at the, the process. And of course, on the plus side, they're probably using uh, AI machine learning technology coupled with the data. Uh, you know, they are modern companies, not like the, some of the incumbents. So, of course, you can then... Uh, offer uh, this sort of uh, this this sort of financing on smaller tickets, which wasn't possible before because uh, you have to do it sometimes partially also manually, and that means you need to have a higher ticket. So this is worthwhile at all, and uh, now this is changing, which is great because we talked about it last month as well. When you look at the trends from the from the pandemic, um, one of the things you see in fintech is uh, the emphasis on the financial education, um, managing your finances, but also inclusion. And it's not just a phrase, right? But you can see it in many different parts of the world and uh, in different segments. Basically, some of the segments were of the population were unbanked because it was just too expensive to reach them by huge incumbents. You know, they have such a machinery. Once they uh, raise their right hand, they need to um, you know, they, they need to charge you uh, 20 grand uh, for assessing a loan if you are a small business. So we also heard a lot of the stories about uh, specialized solutions for small and medium sized businesses. And I think that's that's great. But, but now I want to maybe talk about one more uh, M&A situation. Of course, I spend a lot of time with M&A, so maybe I'm a bit biased. So but I, I like to see that the fintechs also growing up and they may be buying some of their competitors, just like the big tech companies used to do. So, of course, um, big company headquartered out of London, but uh, trying to make it also in the US is Revolut. And Revolut also made, a, made their first acquisition 
from from what I understand ever uh, when they bought it a company called Wanted and uh, you know or they acquired the full team from Wanted rather uh, which is a which was a five strong team from New York uh, very small frankly but it has hundred thousand um, you know hundred thousand users and it sits in HR tech space so by the way you know uh this actually fits very well with our podcast because when i always explain to potential guests that it's a voice of fintech but it doesn't mean we're talking about p2p lending or you know or payments apps or things like this but everything in this world can be a fintech apart from maybe life sciences so you see revolut is buying a company here in the hr tech space uh that calls themselves headhunting as a service right and uh, that it helps um, to bring down the cost of hiring top talent. Now, you know, what is it going to be about? You know, Nick Storonsky says that uh, uh, they can help them with their, uh, with their new products and services. So let's see uh, where Revolut is going. I think the, the issue there is when you hear about this B2C fintechs, of course, there are rock stars and they do something um, very well. They focus on one or two points in the in the value chain, which have been a problem for the incumbents to to do right. But it also means that probably they have one to five products and no more. But when you look at the the typical bank, you probably see that they have two hundred fifty products. So let's see if these fintechs mushroom to that um, size or towards that direction. Hopefully, they don't become as bloated and slow. But uh, what you know, that's a very far, far down the line. But in the next couple of years, you will see the partnerships, you will see the acquisitions, you will see uh, turning themselves into a marketplace. So not all the companies like Revolut, uh, they, they don't need to provide depo- deposits and lending. They can partner with others or, you know, they do Forex well, of course, but some of the banks like N26, etc. They can partner with WISE and you can then send the money all around the world uh, through that and they do a revenue share between themselves. So that's, uh, that's a different, uh, different way of doing things. One uh, comment uh, I'd like to make on the incumbents because it's quite interesting um, that uh, one of the largest banks in the, in the world, including the US HSBC, is now entering into the space which is called uh, banking as a service and banking as a service for them as a big incumbent is something really uh, new I mean they're going to work with Oracle's NetSuite cloud business and accounting software so they can tap into the HSBC's payments and business technology or business banking technology to send and receive money automatically so, for example, you can have an expense report that will be automatically f- f- filed through NetSuite and then paid out via HSBC without any people in being involved. So, um, maybe one, you know, one question to you, David, as well. What do you think about uh, huge, huge banks and incumbents? also trying to say that they are doing banking as a service? You know, that wasn't something that we heard from incumbents until now. Oh, I love it. Um, HSBC is my private wealth manager. <laughs> so, you know, I work, I work with HSBC quite a bit. So, um, and I've always found their technology fantastic. And what I've loved about them is it has not always been, let's say, the most innovative, but it's been reliable. 
and moving money globally, it's, it's always worked and it's been a global product. So you're tying up two behemoths in this place, HSBC Global, Oracle Global. Um, it, it's super smart, right? Oracle uh, tried and proven technology, HSBC tried and proven banking, both international players. Um, so I think they're probably targeting their efforts more um, on the private wealth side of the business, but it should be interesting. I know just last week, HSBC sent out um, to the PWM uh, clients uh, uh, about their new apps, about their new uh, global remittances and processes. I'm sure that's tied into this this technology with Oracle. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It's it's exciting to see that them uh, shaking things up and realizing that even though you're a big bank, you can still win. Yeah, great stuff. You know, I'm also HSBC alumnus, right? I, I used to work for them in London uh, before the financial crisis. So interesting to to hear about this. Back then, nobody talked about fintech, right? That's another funny thing is now a funny thing that uh, now everyone says, oh, we were the original gangsters, you know, we were the fintech before the term was coined. Yes, but you need to kind of rewrite the history sometimes. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Everybody wants to jump on that. Now, one, one, one more thing maybe, and I'll leave, uh, you know, the M&A behind is that we, in last few days, we've seen some rumors about PayPal buying Pinterest. So now PayPal uh, denied the rumors and the Pinterest uh, share price tumbled. What do you think theoretically, if this were to happen, um, does this make sense? Does it have any strategic rationale? Uh, how do you see it or what did you hear from people uh, in New York when you go out and network them? Yeah, I mean, well, first, everyone knows PayPal, right? Being here since the dot-com, um, incredible with their new offerings this year in crypto and um, getting into remittances and PayPal continuing to expand their global footprint. The question became less about what PayPal would do, but how Pinterest would continue to thrive or survive. Remember just a few years ago when it was talked about where Pinterest, you could buy inventory directly from the app. You could find the pin and then it would connect you to merchants on Amazon, uh, similar to, of course, what Instagram later rolled out and uh, other apps like that. It didn't actually become very successful for Pinterest. I think they've struggled. Um, even once they went public, they you know, got their ad dollars up, but they just have not been able to lay a great part of that market. PayPal, why would PayPal want Pinterest? The data is incredible. I mean, think about this. If you're thinking of apps like Foursquare and Instagram with the data, the same thing is with Pinterest. Um, having so many millions of users with images and text and context and, and shops, um, Pinterest is like Etsy, but better. I mean, you, you got such incredible access to these curated lists. Um, it, it would be actually very strategic um, for, for PayPal once, you know, the, the co-owner of eBay as well with their roots in the e-commerce space. Um, it sounds like, again, this deal fell through. Uh, you know, usually when a rumor comes out like that, there was definitely conversations to be had. Uh, but uh, looks like it's not going to be a match made uh, online for these two. Let's see. Let's see. I mean, also years ago, I've seen uh, the you know some or I've heard some bankers talking about uh, the fact that you know you hear the rumors once, then it dies out, then it comes back. You know, once there are rumors, something will happen. Maybe not in this shape and form, but something might happen. So let's see. I think Pinterest came up with the results that were not amazing. But on the other hand, you know, we 
I think we we all love it or we don't we don't hate it uh, at least right so I think it's a great company we had Pinterest on the podcast I spoke to um I spoke to Sarika Sagwan who is the global head of strategy and marketing for financial services and we talked about how you can see Pinterest in a different light because you have lots of users who are there on their side who are motivated users and why wouldn't you use um you know pinterest for your content marketing strategy even if you're a bank or you're fintech etc so that's what we talked about um it was a while back at fintech talents virtual north america also with jim marus of course from the financial brand but uh quite an interesting and surprising one yet again an example of uh fintech is just it's so much more than than just a payments app right so I think that that was great. Now, uh, moving on, I'm thinking maybe, you know, some new people came in. We're just talking about the some of the news related to the fintech world, some of the ones that are positioned as potentially big success. And we're trying to dig into some of the cracks in the story here. So that's what we're trying to do. Now, of course, we'd like to hear from you as well. So if you want to say something, just uh, raise a hand. It's a new feature on Fishbowl, and then we can uh, give you a mic and you can speak as well. Well, because what we'd like to hear from you is, is also what would you like us to do on the podcast if you would like us to dive into particular topics or if you have ideas for the, for the guests as well. Of course, you can email us afterwards at info at voiceoffintech.com or uh, just to go to the website uh, voiceofintech.com and you see the contact form there but you can also tell us now what sort of topics you would like to learn more here we cover a wide range of topics but on the podcast we have guests and we can of course uh, dive into it much more in much more depth what i wanted to mention here is uh you know now moving on to let's say blockchain and and things like this without uh, talking about what the bitcoin price will be by christmas you know nobody knows right um and also um you know there's a lot of people who are big fans and they are uh they they love it but i think when i coach fintech courses at number of uh, business schools around the world we look at the pros and the cons and i think where the where the consensus seems to be emerging is that the Bitcoin is more, um, let's say, a storage of value, but it it's difficult to use it for payments because it's moved so much. So maybe the stable coins or CBDCs are, are the alternative. And if you want to build an ecosystem with apps and the smart contracts, maybe you should look at Ethereum or other things. People also talked about it on the on the podcast, for example, with me, where we, where you need to also look at the economics. So the, the, the minings and all that stuff has a cost. There are fees associated with it. But when you look at the, what, what's uh, built on the, on the blockchain, you see there is, uh, there are a lot more fees um, extracted on Ethereum than on Bitcoin lately. Um, even though Bitcoin is maybe more in the, more in the, uh, the spotlight. So I talked to uh, Wojtek from Superbit a few weeks ago because it was very close to, to my heart that uh, his company is starting uh, to, um, to support the NFT auctions 
related to tennis. And, uh, you know, if you haven't met me, I can talk about tennis all the time. Maybe we should have a tennis discussion as well at some point or business of tennis as well. And if you look at the U.S. Open final, it was very interesting on the women's and the men's side, of course. And Leila Fernandez is an ambassador of Superbid and uh, Superbid put put out their, uh, put out the auction there with the behind the scenes uh, videos of Leila after the final and then when she flew back to, to Canada. And then, of course, um, also when she went to Met Gala, things like this, you could buy the diamonds, as they call it, and then get the video, get the NFT. We talked about the logic of it. You know, why would you want to buy a video like this? What, what is the, what is the um, uh, similarity with baseball cards, for example? Uh, is this all a bubble or not? And also all kinds of, you know, protocols uh, that you need to consider uh, that would be suitable for this or not. So a um, couple of words of wisdom from you on NFTs as well, David. Where are you on this? Are you do you have any, or are you planning to buy some, you know, for for the holidays? Oh, what should I buy for the holidays? Well, I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of tennis too, and I know Rudy will definitely hit that up at the U.S. Open. So I, I like what Superbit did there. Um, I think it's the early days for NFTs. You know, we see companies like So Rare who have grown so much around fantasy football, uh, soccer in Europe, and others. Um, the layers are still being built out. There's six different layers for NFTs that are, are getting built out. Like there's all these layers in every protocol, whether you're looking at Ethereum, whether you're looking at Near, whether you're looking at Solana or the protocols, there's a lot getting built out. Um, where will it land? It, it's still early for me to tell. You know, there's been a lot of new frameworks coming up. Um, I think it's the early days. Um, there's an NFT conference this month in New York City uh, with NFT NYC. So um, I think there's a lot to be said. Uh, I just don't want to speculate too early just yet. Maybe for Christmas, I would like to buy an NFT Christmas tree. Yeah, that would be quite fun. But I, yeah, of course, you know, this is a nascent technology, nascent field. So you got to watch out. But I think there's one very easy benefit, right? When you look at the baseball cards and if you have any if you then decided to sell them, then of course it would be quite difficult. Nowadays you have different platforms, etc., as well, but you would need to ship the physical cards, right? And with NFTs, you can do it quite easily. So I think that's great. Now, otherwise, of course, on the pictures or, or the sports memorabilia, you, you've got holograms and things like this. So this is also an equivalent of that. Now, so that these are the practical benefits. If you look at the value, that maybe is a different story, right? I mean, I look at the open sea at some of the paintings as well, and uh, you know they are great, but are they worth sixty thousand dollars? You know, of course, I'm not sure, right? And I wanted to talk about the CBDCs and also, you know, hear from you, David. What do you think about uh, Salvador? You know, or El Salvador? Apologies to you know, using the uh, Bitcoin uh, there. And now Nigeria is going to, or launches already, E-Naira. So the E version of their currency there. And uh, I just connected with our host there, Adi Joke, and she says some of the banks are already offering this as well. So you could uh, buy this and, and hold the, the E-currency. So the equivalent in the US would be E-dollar. So first of all, you know, using or for a country to use Bitcoin as a currency, uh, you know, for whom can that make sense? Potentially, yes, in emerging markets, it could make sense. But is this the way to go? Is this really suitable for a currency if it's not set up as a stable coin? 
And the second question is CBDCs. You know, I also talked to, uh, of course, uh, Ripple. They, had, you know, they were they obviously have their own uh, challenges uh, this year uh, in the U.S. But one of their arms is working on CBDC solutions. And I talked to James there, who said, "Look, uh, if you just do an electronic currency as it is today, it is electronic anyway. So there has to be some other additional benefits." So. Two things maybe here. Let's bounce off some ideas, uh, David. If you, you know, what do you think about Bitcoin being adopted as a currency or means of payment uh, across the country, like El Salvador, or you know, CBDCs in general? Do they have any benefit, or is this also some kind of a bubble uh, that maybe should be? Yeah, so I don't think uh, decentralized technology is going to go away anytime soon. And here's why. Um, just a few months ago, when China had its latest crackdown on mining and, and uh, uh, actually for, for Bitcoin and Ethereum, you saw the hash rate fall to the lowest it's been in years. And within three months, the hash rate is now back up above the peak levels when mining used to be in China, right? So these nodes and these validators are continuing to, to be uh, further up. And whether that's, you know, proof of work or proof of stake, we're, we're continuing to see the advancement in the industry. Now, determining how valuation is assigned to to these coins or these cryptocurrencies as a stable coin, we think initially of values like Tether to the US dollar, a one-to-one -one ratio. But then how do you look at it at Bitcoin, um, a lot of the conversations have been Bitcoin is to gold, right? It's an inflation hedge. It's a way to to build on assets, and it's not necessarily like one of these uh, altcoins, we'll call them, that will be gone in, in a few months. It's it's here and it's here to stay. Um, where will its value end up? It's to be determined. And I think the challenge with Bitcoin is that if you're hedging that for your currency, the transaction rate is quite slow. Um, and it's, it's very hard to own a unit of it because of its value. And that value keeps going up, which is why uh, a lot of development uh, went to Ethereum. And then a lot of new development has gone to Solana and other tech stacks as well. And I think a lot of uh, countries like Nigeria and El Salvador and others are turning towards these to peg their currency because they haven't seen the United States come in to say, well, let's peg to the dollar. Or they haven't seen the EU come in and say, why don't we peg to, to the euro? And so this does create the dilemma of if you're a developing nation, how do you protect your interests? And if you're not having your government pr protected or you're not having other outside uh, agencies, it might be that partnering with these um, different uh, cryptocurrencies could be that solution to stabilize inflation for your country. So I think it's really fascinating. Um, there's other actually interesting networks. In fact, one that we're talking to that we'll be bringing on to Voice of Fintech uh, next month is IOTA. And IOTA does a lot around securitizing data. They've actually been a, in the space for a while. So it'll be exciting to see what the IOTA Foundation has been building out of Berlin around data and all things data um, in cryptocurrency. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't or not as many people talk about. All right. And not as many people talk about the quantum computing as 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 many as many are talking about the Bitcoin. Right. So I wanted to also bounce off some ideas on the quantum computing and the race there uh, with you, David, because I always 
a worry that you know we say for example uh, without too much thinking that the blockchain is immutable right but when you look into the uh, the crypt uh, to the quantum computing uh, it is understood that if it ever works uh, probably by 2035 you will have a quantum computer that will be capable of breaking the cryptogra cryptographic scheme uh, that is essential uh, to immutability of the blockchain some of these protocols therefore can be open to quantum attacks and some of them not so are am i thinking or too being too worried a bit too soon or you know what's your view on this and if uh you know you also host your uh podcast on on ai right and humane so i think it's uh right up your alley uh would you be backing ibm versus google or or how would you uh, how do you see the quantum race so so first on immutability um in fact there are some chains focusing on immutability in fact there's a level two or or level two infrastructure called immutable uh, which is built on top of Ethereum, Solana, and others. They compete with Polygon, and they're, they're in that space. So there is immutability that we're seeing on, on chain. My area that I focus on is all things data. So that could even be, yes, on-chain data and crypto data and quantum data, but I am by no means a quantum expert. One of my um, good friends, Nardo Manalato, in fact, is a crypto um, and quantum thought leader, having worked in quantum for a couple decades and has an incredible board uh, focusing on quantum. And in their quantum accelerator, what they saw, in fact, uh, over the last few years is companies that are building quantum products are getting acquired and they are scaling and the technology is getting closer to adoption. Two companies that they really focused on um, you know, became unicorns. And these are just in the last few years. One of them focused on uh, uh, deep tech with quantum and the other one is AI products with quantum. So um, I think it's the early days, but you know, when you think of a quantum to get practical, it's about solving global problems. It's having a new compute paradigm and it's, it's focusing on technologies that just need so much compute that CPUs and GPUs just can't get there as fast as we need. Uh, and I, I think it's the early days, just as I think that the 2020s are the decades of data and the 2030s is when AI will mature. I think 2030s and late 2020s is when we're going to see quantum start to mature and it's all going to be converging in the 2040s. So it's, it's very far out thinking, but there are exciting startups today in the quantum space um, and it's, it's only getting started right now. Right, right. And uh, when I see these pictures of quantum computing, you know, I always have to uh, come back to, I guess, my childhood. And there is one obscure uh, science fiction TV show that I liked, and it's about visitors from the future. Basically, in the 25th century, uh, the show shows that uh, the, the humankind is run by a computer. And that computer looks just like the quantum computing com computer. And uh, it, it warns the, uh, the leadership that... Uh, the uh, asteroid is going to hit us and that's why they need to go back to the 20th century to find uh, a scientist who apparently thought that he devised the formula how to move continents but uh, the, it was in his notebook that got burned down as when he was a child so that's why they go there but long story short they come back with his teacher and the teacher sees that this computer is off balance so all he does, he puts like a little bit of a, 
the wooden stick under, under, underneath that, the computer balances, and then it announced this was all an error and there is no problem and the earth is safe. So here is just a bit of a message uh, to everyone. For example, when you work with AI, when you work with the numbers, and you are senior managers, you are the uh, experienced uh, business leaders, you should always just step back and think about, does this make sense, right? And uh, it's not about getting the, uh, the answers from some sort of a model or machine learning that is technically correct, but it's practically useless, right? It's about something that works for, uh, for business as well. So just a little bit of a detour, uh, memory lane, but um, I also... But it's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how in just the last couple of years, um, for, for the listeners here, you know, you have this company, Regetti, and Regetti focuses on quantum compute with qubits. They raised almost $200 million and they IPO'd at a $1.5 billion valuation. You have Ionic. Ionic is working on trapped ions in quantum. Uh, they also raised $84 million, valued at $2 billion IPO'd. You have a cybersecurity company out in, in Europe called Arkit. Arkit raised $400 million, valued at $1.4 billion, focused on cybersecurity and quantum encryption. So it, it's no longer just the, the scientific dreams of tomorrow. Uh, it's starting now, and you know, I think we're accelerating um, with all things data. And that, of course, leads to you know, AI, quantum, uh, Web3. Right. And uh, to finish off the, you know, the loop on the blockchain and, and related topics, you know, I talked to uh, Peter uh, from Mercury IO as well on the podcast this month. And it's been great because he, his mission in life is to make uh, the exchange between fiat and crypto completely seamless, right? You have one wallet and there you have your crypto, you have your uh, fiat currency, and you can pay with whatever whatever you like. So that's quite interesting. Building bridges between the uh, the traditional world or the, uh, the 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 new world, so to speak. I also learned a new buzzword this month, and maybe that's my ignorance. I didn't know that before. But apparently, there's not only DeFi, but there is also ThreadFi, right? So some people want to build connections between the two. Make sure that the incumbents also embrace it. And uh, that's Mercury, but also I talked to Alliance Blockchain, which uh, is devoted to building a, an ecosystem for all kinds of uh, DeFi applications as well. So uh, that led me to a book that I'm, I'm reading, which is very basic, How to DeFi. So any comments on the DeFi potential? And especially when you look at the, the incumbents, you know, we'll... Will companies like JP Morgan are going to do more in this space or do you think they will watch out uh, and maybe once it's more proven, they will step on step on the gas a bit more? Well, I, I think it's the early days of DeFi, um, DeFi being decentralized finance and all the applications there. You can just go to DeFiPulse.com and see how many billions of dollars some of these DeFi chains are already working on. And, and it's just incredible to see the growth, to see that there's over $100 billion in DeFi uh, today. It's, it's, it's growing at, at a strong clip, um, somewhere up to you know, 20% uh, monthly. I think DeFi is only natural. The next evolution of the companies we've talked about uh, on Voice of Fintech and on this series like Revolut and, and other ones about doing remittances and having global payments, it's making it more accessible. It's lowering the fees. It's decreasing the access with less barriers. 
um, and, and speeding up everything better, faster, cheaper. Will companies like uh, JP Morgan ultimately come in? I, I'm sure the answer is yes. You know, um, many, many of the big institutions like to have a strong opinion, uh, as I think uh, the leaders at JPM do uh, share every once in a while. Um, but, but I do think Web3 is here to stay. I think DeFi is here to stay. It's still the early days. Right, right, right. I mean, um, of course, the question is sometimes, uh, you know, whether you wait too long and then you can still snap up a competitor if you don't have a capability and all that stuff. But it, maybe it's going to cost you dearly if you if you waited too long. But if you are a regulated bank, you know, maybe you don't really have a choice, right? You cannot uh, uh, go into certain areas uh, before the your regulators are also comfortable. So I wanted to finish off on my pet uh, project, pet grievance or pet uh, interest, and uh, which I think is quite related to what you do as well, uh, David. You said you know all things data and humane, and and it's your work, and also the business angel syndicate, right? And uh, I talked to Penny Schiffer, uh, that is quite known entrepreneur in Switzerland, and she's now in San Francisco. Uh, uh, meeting the VCs and raising money for her company, Race.ai. And basically the idea there is, or the premise is quite simple, is that when you are a VC, it's it's no longer uh, possible or, you know, who knows whether it's ever been acceptable or, or a good practice to just rely on your network when you do sourcing of the deals. Of course, it's important. But if you start with just friends of your friends, what ends up happening as well is you don't have the diversity, for example. Somebody told me, you know, you have all the uh, the, the white men in, uh, you know, in the VCs uh, and then they invest in people they know. Uh, and then you end up uh, having founders who exactly look like them. So uh, how is that ever going to work? Because you're also funding the teams that are building products for other people. So it would be even, you know, from a selfish perspective, very uh, much smarter to have those people around so you can build a better product. So um, how do you then go from just sourcing from your network to do something a little bit more systematic, something a little bit more scientific, so to speak, uh, let's see, uh, you know, some of the investors that I, uh, that I talked to, uh, it's going to, uh, you know, it will be released soon. For example, Fidelity, uh, they developed a thematic view and they dig into this and they research it and then they proactively uh, go after the potential targets. Uh, JP Morgan actually, you know, told me the same thing as well. So, but there are a lot of uh, investors who work like the, in the good old days in, in San Francisco, if you were not within a one hour drive from Sand Hill Road, then you didn't get the funding. So what Penny here is trying to do is to build an AI tool, which is going to be like a crawler, uh, going through all the information out there for you in line with your preferences. And then you would need to research this and sorry, review the potential ideas every week. And they, depending on this, the AI will learn and will give you better ideas. And the, the point there is to uh, look at things that maybe you have missed. So it's uh, if you use in a European context, uh, she mentioned like, okay, maybe you're so well networked, you know, 80% 80, 80 of the ideas in Germany, but you need to know 100% so that your fund is successful. So how do you do it? And you also want to get there 
uh, faster. So that means it's smaller tickets. So you will not be able to have the army of the anal uh, of analysts uh, doing all the research manually. So you do need a tool. You and of course that tool needs to learn with time. So it should be machine learned based, etc. So what do you think about that, David? Can you can we institutionalize this outreach, the deal sourcing, or it's just a, a fantasy because? On the other hand, some people tell me, uh, for example, from London, that you know they what they don't like about databases and things like this that the information is dated and the information is often incorrect. So then it's useless anyway if you don't have the data quality. Uh, any sort of web crawler or AI-powered machine that is using incorrect public information is not going to help you. So, what is your view on this? Well, well, first, uh, whether you're looking at uh, any part of the private equity and venture capital industry as an angel investor, as a solo capitalist, or as a general partner, um, it is a relationship business. And those signals and trends that you're tracking towards, whether it's in a database or whether it's augmented by tools, is only as powerful as those relationships. And the challenge happens to one of the first early points that you mentioned is that underrepresented minorities, URMs, um, like myself, often don't have access to these networks. These are things that we build over years and years um, to play at the same level as traditionally uh, the straight white male uh, who has led in Sand Hill Road and other cities. We're, we're seeing a shift in the ecosystem today where that's no longer true, uh, where we're seeing Generation Z, Gen Z investors. We're seeing um, URMs like Harlem Capital in New York and others from diverse backgrounds beginning to lead by having diversity as a secret sauce, as a competitive uh, edge for what they're building on. And what I believe in, in venture, whether you're going at it as part of your portfolio diversification strategy as an angel, or you're, you're leading as a capitalist, your network is only good in the moment. Your network is always changing. And if you don't continue to build your network in five years, well, the network has changed as well. So what that means is today to be the best possible investor, you do need to augment your relationships with tools. So I love what that founder is doing. I love what they're building at Raised um, because as a person, you only have so much time, right? You only have so much utility that you can be in meetings and go through emails and study pitch decks and go through due diligence. And if you can have tools that can accelerate that, whether it's through discoverability or through honing your edge to be human augmented in the space, I think that's really exciting. And I think that these tools also um, enable uh, the, the new generation of VCs, those who don't traditionally come from Sandhill role, uh, to be uh, accelerating and leading in it. Right. So a lot of the other a lot of the people also say they do both in terms of inbound and outreach of course uh but i think only a minority at least in europe i think it's more common in the us only minority uses some sort of uh, ai powered or machine learning tools i think the the reason is that in the us it's it's so competitive right so you have to get to the deals quickly and then you need to build the relationships, you're right, it's all about relationships, you need to have a network. Uh, but um, I always say, you know, so so what if somebody has a great idea from 
somewhere in the mountains and some I've read somewhere that uh, you know you have founders who are in the network or who are who are not so even if you're not in the network you should be able to get your idea off the ground and uh, uh, you know you shouldn't be limited by the people you know maybe you were just not uh, you know uh, you didn't grow up in the in that kind of place you, you were not born into that kind of a network or privilege so uh, there should be another way. And uh, of course, there is another debate about the algorithms and the biases and all that as well. So it depends what you build into it. But I think it's uh, it's great that uh, people think outside of the box and they want to give everybody a chance. And uh, in, you know, in return, uh, they will be better, better investors and uh, everyone will be better off, I think. So Let's give everybody uh, a chance and uh, and uh, you know a fair treatment, of course. So, uh, on that note, I really would like to ask uh, if there is if there are any questions from anybody. All right, hopefully we'll uh, we'll get some questions uh, next time we do this. Uh, as I said, there's a new feature on Fishbowl. You can raise your hand, and then we can give you a mic, so it's moderated. But in any case. Uh, I think this has been this has been great. You know, we mentioned a couple of examples what we covered on the Voice of Fintech podcast. Oh, I see. All right, there is a Smita uh, who has something to say. So great. All right, hi Smita, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? It's more a question though. You made a really interesting statement where in the world of venture capitalists, you are um. Um, it's a little more difficult to go in as an URM because, you know, a lot of it, it uh, like B gets alike more. So how do, how do URMs, obviously based on my name, you know, I'm one. How do people like me get into the mix if, if these are some of the opportunities? Yeah, I'd love to share a little bit on that. So uh, to rephrase the question, uh, the question is, you know, how do you get access either to deals as an angel or how do you um, get into the world of VC? Is that right? Yep. So, so um, two things I've done personally. So I'm part of OnDeck. I'm in the OnDeck Angels program. OnDeck is YC for the 21st century. Um, so I'm part of their program um, right now. I'm one of their cohorts and, and they're incredible, great things to say about OnDeck. I'm also part of Founder Institute. They have a program called VC Lab, um, part of their, their fifth cohort. Uh, their, their most recent cohort now has over a thousand applicants. Um, I'm not saying you have to do accelerator programs like OnDeck and Founder Institute, but I've had great experiences with both. Um, happy to connect with you and talk about these and other programs as well. For me, they're so valuable because of the community and because of the leaders who've been there, done it before. Um, it's just so incredible to learn from that. Um, you know, I think that's those are, those are some resources I'd recommend. All right. Well, thank you, Smita, for the question. So if you have more questions, you can always email us as well, as I said, at info at voiceoffintech.com, or you can go to the website. There is a very simple, nice, uh, nice form there, and you can just uh, give us your ideas also, what you would like to hear uh, here uh, on the podcast. It could be about how to break into the world of uh, venture or business angel investing, or how to get funded if you, if you, our uh, URM, etc. Let's uh, let's connect and uh, let's learn more about the the world of fintech. Uh, it is huge. The opportunities are tremendous. Uh, you also could see 
the uh, the level of fundraising level of valuations it's at the record heights uh, this year so hopefully uh, we we won't regret it hopefully this is sustainable uh, because we'd like to build sustainable businesses or be, be around people who do so thank you so much for joining us you can also uh, you know look out for the recording of this if you missed part of this I think uh, we'll get the recording from fishbowl and uh, we can we can uh, release it as a podcast in the next couple of weeks so thank you so much and thank you smitha for your question and uh, david for co-hosting thank you rudy thanks everyone we'll, we'll see you again soon thank you for listening to voice of fintech podcast if you haven't already check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at voiceoffintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.